Does the idea of death make you anxious? Or are you fully comfortable with your mortality? Either way, the awareness of death fundamentally impacts many different aspects of our lives. You're Going to Die, the podcast, is sponsored by the Ernest Becker Foundation, or EBF. The EBF serves to educate people about how the awareness of death impacts our behavior and beliefs, and relies on cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker's theories as well as current research. Check out the EBF's current initiative, the Mortality Awareness Preparedness Project, or MAP, M-A-P. MAP offers intro to death anxiety workshops for individuals, as well as workshops for advocacy groups to learn how death anxiety impacts us individually and societally. The EBF has presented to organizations whose work touches on police accountability, racial justice, gun safety, and reproductive health. If you or your nonprofit is interested in a workshop, learn more at ernestbecker.org and click on MAP Project. Ernest Becker's ideas have led to a flourishing field of social psychology that is now shown in over 1,500 studies that death affects the way we live, make decisions, interact with each other, create cultures, and structure our societies. The EBF also offers features and webinars examining how the fear of death impacts current ongoing social issues like climate change and racial justice. Stay up to date on the EBF's upcoming features, webinars, and events by signing up for their monthly email list at ernestbecker.org. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Ernest Becker Foundation or contact them at info at ernestbecker.org. Hello, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. My name is Ned Buskirk. I'm your host for the evening. Pull up a chair next to this burning fire, warm your hands and your heart, and let's talk about your eventual death just for a little while. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, I am out of my mind today, but I'm feeling glad to be in your ear, grateful for you specifically, the one that is hearing me right now, because I know you're really there. You're like little flesh mobile is alive right now. What a thing to be able to, to do this here and put this episode together in ways I care so much about, but won't get into because I want to make this intro succinct and get to the point. But I do want to say that I'm glad you're alive and I'm glad you're listening. And and I mean, I I mean it like I've said versions of it before. I'm just glad to have conversations like this and know after 10 years that there's an audience out there. I see some people post about the podcast and say, uh, yeah, just don't, don't be put off by the title. You know, you, what you mean, the fact of life that the title is representing, (laughs) like you're going to die. Uh, I get it. You know, I'm both. I'm both things. I get it. I get it. It's intense. And the podcast can hold some stuff. But I would like to think that this episode is a tenderer version of what we put out. And I think that comes with the presence of our guest, someone who felt like just good to be with for me, good to talk to, like healing almost in a way, just to listen to him. And I want to specify the category I feel like of this guest, which is, you know, our elder. I didn't ask him if I could call him that, but I think of a lot of the people that have influenced my work in the world that have been doing it for decades longer than me. They're my elders in this death and dying conversation. And I feel like there's been several episodes of the podcast where I got to talk with those people and I'm just feeling it today too feeling the gratitude for a chance to have a conversation and get emotional and say things about what I'm doing, ask questions about what I'm doing from someone who has been doing it for decades and decades. And I want to kind of leave it at that. I just want to give you this conversation and get into it. 
Dr. Charles Garfield has been recognized internationally as the founder of the Shanti Project, which is long cared for people at the end of life. And and I just want to note something we talk about in the conversation. It's not just that. It's people with life-threatening illness, AIDS, and COVID uh, patients during the pandemic. Um, but end of life is particularly their focus. For nearly 50 years, Dr. Garfield has pioneered the development of service-oriented volunteer organizations and the training of volunteers and health professionals in a wide variety of applications. For his work with Shanti and for originating the Shanti model of peer support, and that is trademarked. That thing is dialed and it is trademarked for a reason. Dr. Garfield was named National Activist of the Year, one of America's highest awards to individuals making voluntary contributions in public service. For over four decades, Dr. Garfield served as clinical professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine at San Francisco. And Dr. Garfield is the author of 13 books, most recently the widely respected Our Wisdom Years, Growing Older with Joy, Fulfillment, Resilience, and No Regrets, and Life's Last Gift, Giving and Receiving Peace When a Loved One is Dying. He is currently a research scholar at the Star King School of the Ministry of Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And I don't think there's more to add. Uh, I just want to give you this conversation. This episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Dr. Charles Garfield. Well, I could probably start best by saying that I've been doing this work with people at the end of life, both people who are dying and also people who are contemplating mortality for almost 50 years. It's been a very long time and a very interesting journey. By training, I'm a clinical psychologist with a PhD from UC Berkeley and a clinical professor of psychology at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco. Uh, much of the work that I've done and the work, certainly the work I'm most proud of is the founding of an organization called Shanti Project. Shanti Project is a community-based volunteer organization which teaches volunteers how to care for people, not only at the end of life, but people who are dealing with an assortment of maladies that make living difficult and sometimes bring up, very frequently bring up issues of mortality. People who are lonely and alone and old, people who are dealing with such maladies as cancer and AIDS and COVID. Um, so, I'm most proud of the work we've done over these many years with Shanti Project. We've had over 15,000 volunteers just in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area alone. There have been hundreds of other organizations that have around the world that have modeled their own uh, volunteer-based organizations after Shanti. And uh, much of what I've learned about mortality and about dying and about end-of-life care stems from my work with Shanti Project. Thank you for that. I, I, I think when we talked the first time we ever talked, I got to share a little bit with you and about my story that led to doing this work and, and really like all the way back, you know, the loss of my mom in particular, but the things that I've gone through that even have you and I talking today, you know, connects all the way back. And I guess I'm wondering what your version of, of that story is like, when did you, was it in school that you started to have interest in this particular uh, work? What is that journey for you? Yeah, it's an interesting question that the, uh, the origin story of my interest in mortality and death and end of life care really stems from the death of my grandfather in 1973, which was the year before I founded Shanti Project. I was very close to my maternal grandfather and his death was quite a jolt. I went from not understanding anything and not really thinking much about death to realizing that we're all subject 
to mort mortality concerns. And I finished my doctorate not long after that and decided that the best use of my training as a clinical psychologist would be to work with people who were seriously ill, who were facing their own mortality, their, their own end of life situation, and to engage in a kind of dialogue with them in order to assist them in understanding how to cope more effectively with what is for all of us a, a very challenging situation. I wanted to use those skills that I had learned in a wonderful doctoral program in clinical psychology to benefit people who were really up against it, up against it in the sense that they had terminal diagnoses often and were not going to live very long, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and were for the very first time contemplating their own end, their own mortality. When that those years around your grandfather's death was there something that is there a way about how he died that you wanted to emulate or magnify or inspired you into what could be possible for the dying or or is there a way that he he didn't die that really affected you in a way that you suddenly felt the fire to pursue this particular work? That's a wonderful question. The, uh, the answer is both of those, both of those possibilities existed at the time. In other words, there were things about my grandfather's death that I did not want to emulate, that I learned to avoid. He died in an inner city hospital on a gurney in the hallway because there was no room for him. And he was alone and he needed to to go to the bathroom, he needed food, he needed attention, and there simply was not that uh, available to him at the time. And so I would spend hours with him simply talking, talking about his life, helping him get to the bathroom, helping him get food, helping get nurses to attend to his pain. Uh, and I realized that my presence there as a compassionate witness as somebody who really loved him and cared about him, was absolutely instrumental in giving him any comfort at all during a very difficult situation. So I learned what doesn't work for people, namely being ignored at the end of life and not having enough support. And what does work, having somebody who really understands how to connect, how to speak from the heart and listen from the heart and act from the heart um, so as to make it a more, um, how shall I say, comfortable and less traumatizing experience. My, thank you for sharing that. My sense of you is in the little we've, the little time we spent together talking, <clears throat> is is your your heartfelt intention and intuition and that might be hard <laughs> to speak to about your own self but i wonder back then when you were young i mean how old were you when you were with your grandfather holding that space and was there a familiarity where your inner landscape or something inside you really found ease or um a connection to being that for your grandfather or was it like really uncomfortable and really hard? I mean, obviously I'm sure there's a, it maybe was a mix experience because it was your grandfather, but I'm so curious to know at that age in a way that I wonder, you know, do I relate when I've decide to sign up to go and visit hospice patients, like I'm drawn to the space and I want to be in it, even though it's sometimes really uncomfortable and heartbreaking, there's something in me that felt even at a young age, like I want to be here. And I wonder if you had that feeling or something like it. I had exactly that feeling that it was much more difficult for me to not be with my grandfather than to be with him. I wanted to be there. It was important for me personally to be there. Um, I felt like I was not abandoning him, especially in a time of great need, that 
it was not so much that I was intimidated by the situation, although it was complicated and painful. What was intimidating was not being there when I had to go home, when I had to leave him. And I had to have all, I was tormented by these images of this poor man lying on a gurney or later on and he finally got a bed um, alone during the most arduous time in his life. You don't abandon people when they need you most. You don't treat people, you don't throw people away like old shoes. Well, if you love somebody, you demonstrate that by stepping up, by being there. As I said, by speaking, listening, and acting from the heart, uh, by being a compassionate witness, uh, by being a compassionate caregiver. All of those things are, are things that people can learn. You can learn all of those things. And what you can't learn, unless you really think it through, is the intention to be there no matter what. That doesn't mean you don't care for yourself. It doesn't mean you don't have limits. It just means that you spend as much time and as much of your precious energy supporting them as you possibly can. Yeah, thank you. I, how old were you? I was 26 at the time. Yeah, wow. Yeah, when my mom died, I was 26. I mean, there's all, it's always like not trying to be like, well, we definitely connect because the facts are there, <laughs> you know, like we were the same age, but there has been a feeling talking to you where, and I sometimes feel this in, in some of these conversations where I meet people in the end of life realm, that there's a familiarity to the stories. And so then like the person and thinking at that age, the way of being young and knowing something most other people your age didn't know yet or hadn't lived through. Did you have that feeling then? Uh, yeah, it was very clear that other 26-year-olds were not thinking about the things that I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah. um, and, it, and it was age appropriate for them. It was 26-year-olds are filled with life and filled with a sense of, might I say, their own... Uh, alleged immortality. Uh, they, uh, they feel like they're uh, not vulnerable in any way, that they're invulnerable. And that's the way 26-year-olds feel. Well, uh, I suppose I felt that way to some degree also. I didn't feel vulnerable being with my grandfather at 26. I didn't feel like it was something that was going to haunt me soon, that my own demise was going to be something that became an issue. I felt strong and therefore obligated, along with my love for him, to be there, to be present in a time of his greatest need. Later on, of course, when my father died, and then later on when my mother died, the degree of my own, um, my own mortality, my own vulnerability was much more apparent because I was older then. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, you know, even to go, come further at this stage of your life, after all these decades of doing this work, that there is this feeling of you becoming the thing that you've put so much intention and heart in, into your life. And, um, and yes, that so then maybe starts with losing the most intimate people in our life. And, and so then like more and more over the years, is that an experience you feel very present to right now um, more than ever? Like what is your own personal relationship to being at this stage in your life and, and these losses like your parents and then the connection to uh, decades of work in end of life. I know that's kind of a big sort of what is that for you, but I, I, it is, it is, you kind of like led me to where I was kind of going anyway. Well, Ned, I'm 77 years old. People my age die. People my age die frequently. People younger than me die. Uh, if you look at the uh, obituaries, which I occasionally do, sometimes. Uh, it's not unusual for there to be people younger than me who are dying. So how does that affect me? Well, it's the preciousness of everyday life. It's the preciousness of my relationship 
with my wife, with the people I care about most in the world. Um, it's the preciousness of time and how I use my time. Uh, there's a sense of mortality leading to a, to a, a strong feeling of uh, making the best use of what I have left and, and also reflecting back on, on history and my own personal history and asking myself the question, how do I feel about the way I've used my life and lived my life? And for the most part, I feel grateful and wonderful about how it's all transpired. Um, you know, if I have another 10 years, if I have, who knows, if I have another 20 years, that would be lovely. Um, but right now it, it feels like death is an advisor. Death is, an, is, is advising my, my own mortality is advising me that it's, it's uh, as if the, the strongest mentor I have now is my own finitude, my own, uh, the life that I have left, the amount of life I have left, and what that means is my greatest advisor right now, my strongest advisor. Everybody, just want to take a moment to uh, catch our breaths. Uh, I'm really using this moment to do that. I have got so much in my heart and mind today, but I just get to be right here in your ear. I'm relishing your ear canal right now. Thank you for letting me be here. It means so much to us to have a place to put this. And if you're hearing me say this, definitively, you deserve acknowledgement. So thank you. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want more shows, more episodes, I have some suggestions of how you can help. Now, first of all, the biggest thing you can do is to share the show with other people, truly. I'm, I'm like, right now, if you're really feeling this episode, just pick somebody to send it to, just send them a text. Hey, check this episode out. You have no idea how big a deal that is to just help us spread this thing around. And I always think of it like, yeah, you know, we'll get success if we build it this way and get the numbers up. But, you know, a better way to remember when we promote things, I feel like for you're going to die is like, who needs this? Who needs this conversation? And so I really encourage you to share it with somebody in your life who you think might need it. And um, other than that, you can become one of the people that helps make the podcast possible through our Patreon community. And that could be as little as $1 a month up to, drum roll please, $5,000 a month. <laughs> I actually am realizing that it's not the highest tier. I thought it was, for some reason I got it in my head that that's the highest tier, or maybe it's a number I threw out at some point. But I figured out how to include that tier. What do, what do I mean figured it out? I figured out how to type the number into one of the tier options. So there's a there's seven tier options right now, anywhere from $1 to $25 to $5 to $2 to $5,000. So go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D and you can just become a contributor there. And we're a 501c3 which is wonderful, so your contribution is tax deductible. Um, every time one of those new contributors pops through, and it might be you today, really, you just, you gotta know when I get those emails, you're gonna get some love back immediately. Like, I will respond and send you a note and be gushing and wanting to tell you how much I'm grateful for you and love you and thank you. So do it, test me out, bring it, go there, do it now, patreon.com forward slash YG2D. And then just a couple other easy ways to support the podcast is through ratings and the two best places to do that. Spotify now allows you to click a star rating. So one, two, three, four, five stars. In fact, we got enough people doing that that we can tell what our ranking is now. 
we couldn't for a while because they just added it. But when you get enough people to click the stars, it suddenly tells you how many people love it. And as it turns out, people tend to love it via Spotify and in general. Um, and then Apple Podcasts is the other good way. And in that option, you can do the stars, but you can also share a few words. And that's extra special because we read all those words. They mean so much to us. And often they really help us really keep doing what we're doing. I always say it, we'll do it anyway, but it sure helps to have funding, contributions, words of encouragement, words of acknowledgement, love for how this thing landed for you, this episode, the shows in general. Uh, we we want to hear from you. Another way to reach out, by the way, is via email. You can just shoot us an email at pod at yg2d.com, pod at yg2d.com. I think that's it for now. Did I overwhelm you? Just don't worry about it if it's too much. Truly, we are just glad to be in your ear. So one of the accidental themes of this episode is is our relationship to elders. And Nick and I will talk a bit about this more at the end of the episode. Thinking of creating a moment here in the midst, though, to kind of slow us down and help us catch our breath, I thought it'd be really nice to share some words from Stephen Jenkinson. If you haven't listened to his episode, it's it's early in our catalog of episodes. Check it out. Um, it's pretty pretty wonderful, and it's wonderful for one reason because of this elder presence. Uh, and we talk about Dr. Charles Garfield as being that um, getting to have that, not just with getting to talk to him, but through his books. and And Stephen Jenkinson is that for me. He was that way with his books before I met him, and then when I've been able to be with him many times since, it's 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 like that. Um, to, to be with him. And so felt fitting to include this prayer here by Stephen Jenkinson, one that I really, really love and have read a lot at different workshops and events. So I asked Nick Jane if he wouldn't mind reading this prayer for you and holding it a bit with some of the medicine of his music. I make a prayer now to your old ones to those whose face you never saw and voice you never heard and name you haven't known that they remember you and while you try to find them remembering you that they come at the proper time to gather you in that they whisper to you the truth that you haven't been alone and won't be that they know the hard friendship of the ending of days I make a prayer that all who were there at your making will be there for your gathering in. That their hands will be there just by your opening head, your little fountain, to make a home for your sorrowing heart and for you. I make a prayer that your house and your people will be blessed by your coming and your going, that the day will come when they will boast of, for a while, having known you, and will marvel at the way of your going out from among them and that you might be reason enough for them to continue for a while. And that, in the days to come, you will be claimed as noble, as an ancestor worth coming from. Thank you.
There was something about the situation that, that was familiar to me, even though I had never been in it before. I understood loneliness because as a child, there was a considerable amount of loneliness in my life, especially as a young child. So when I saw that loneliness in my grandfather's situation, I recognized it. It was almost as if even though he was the first person I had ever been close to who died, there was almost a sense of familiarity that I had been there before. I think all of us, if we ask ourselves the question, when have we been most alone? When have we been most alone in our lives where somebody didn't step up? That's the basic existential challenge of many people facing their own end. And I realized that I could step up, that I could be there, that I could help mitigate and minimize the loneliness and, and to help in concrete ways and help in just simply by presence, by, by being, a, as I say, a compassionate witness that that was something that I could do just by being the best of myself and engaging in conversation and engaging in deathbed conversation and, and doing whatever it is he most wanted me to do. Thank you for that, Charles. I, I'm thinking all along while you're describing that time, what I think maybe has been missing in our culture maybe specifically here in the States, but this sense that, and I feel like Steven Jenkinson, I don't know if you know much of his work, but it, he's had a pretty big influence on me in this way that we're adverse or not, we often don't feel capable of filling the role of taking care of each other at the end of life in particular. And so then there's also a sense that other people don't want to be a burden and don't want to ask of us. But, and I've had this conversation even very recently with some cancer patients that I, that I work with that like I felt with my mother and, and maybe you felt with your grandfather and then your parents, the sense of like the honor of that responsibility and that of course it's not easy of course it's hard but in fact that's how it's supposed to be and that's part of why it's an honor that's part of the point the point is that we are there not knowing exactly all the answers not always being able to take the pain away not being able to save someone's life but to be with them at the end in all the ways the unraveling is happening and that that is part of our responsibility and work as community members as family Instead of this, I think what our culture is and a system has built up to put the dying places where someone else can mostly deal with all the things, the messiness and the hard parts, the dark parts. Um, does that relate to what that was like then and also to what your work over the decades to come after that and the Shanti project, like maybe some intention about what you did in the years to come? I think it very much meshes with Shanti and the lessons that I've learned. You know, when, when you're talking, the uh, main lesson that I get from what you said and what we're talking about is that there are important awarenesses that come to both the person dying and the, and the companion and the person who's there as a compassionate witness, as a, as a volunteer, as a loved one. And the major lesson that both people learn is love, that there's a kind of anticipatory grief that happens, grief before the death, but anticipating it, anticipating the fact that this life is about to end. And what am I learning by being here? And what I've learned in caring for my grandfather, my parents, my best friend, other people who I've known, many other people who have died, is that what sustains us best and most poignantly in our lives is the capacity for love. That this person who I love dearly, this person who I care about dearly, 
is going to be gone. And, and although death ends a life, it doesn't end a relationship. The relationship continues. It continues in the mind and heart, and the love continues in the mind and heart. And that that will it'll be that way for the rest of our lives. I I still talk to my father and mother and grandfather. I I talk to them in my imagination. I imagine what they would say, what responses they would give. I ask them how they are. Uh, and you know that may sound a little strange, and but it but it's real. It's it's a real experience. And a wonderful experience, and it all hinges on this capacity for love. Yeah, thank you. When you first started into your work after your grandfather died, like those, you say a year later um, or so, you started the Shanti Project. Did you feel in the 70s uh, pushing up against something that people weren't ready to? embrace or align with. I'm thinking like we, we have an episode recently with a producer from Radiolab who did a whole, essentially an audio biography on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and knowing like fifties and sixties, there maybe started to be a shift, but I, I would imagine still into the seventies, there might've been places where you were pushing up against the edge of what people were really willing to do in the end of life sphere. Is that some experience you had? I think in the seventies, uh, Shanti was founded. I founded Shanti in 1974. Kubler-Ross's work was uh, starting at that point. Um, hospice was starting at that point. I think there was a budding curiosity and a budding awareness of the importance of focusing on end-of-life work at that point. And death became something that people were studying. There were suddenly college courses and even... And even uh, community other community projects that uh, began where people were trained in in all sorts of ways to care for people at the end of life so I think that curiosity rather than resistance um, I think if there was something slow in emerging it was in the medical system that uh, if if there was a, a resistance to considering, the fact that people were dying, it was in hospitals and medical centers where doctors in particular and nurses to some extent, although not nearly as much, were not at all interested in considering these matters. Uh, it took a while to get the, the healthcare system on board so that there really is an awareness that caring for people at the end of life is a specialty is something that we need to all learn that that all of us will be involved in one fashion or another, first as caregiver and then later as patient in end of life care. It took a while to get that going, but no, in the 70s, uh, the, uh, what my experience was the people were just tremendously curious. Is there, this, this actually feels like a good place to, to give our listeners a chance to understand the Shanti project a little more. Can you describe how kind of a little bit of how it was founded and sort of what the organization arc of the organization was to almost to where it met the medical uh, context? Cause it sounds like, you know, it's not like you were implementing something in a hospital, you were creating something um, outside of that system, but that it met up against the medical system. Does that make sense for a question kind of to sort of describe how the sort of umbrella of the Shanti project works? Yeah, actually, I started Shanti project at University of California Medical School in San Francisco. Um, I had a number of volunteers who came to the bedsides to help me because I was the first mental health professional on a 40 bed cancer unit. And I couldn't take care of all 40 people. There was no way. So I needed help and a volunteer program where I could train, select and train and supervise volunteers was the solution I came up with. But the, there were so many rules and regulations and restrictions at the medical school. Uh, and there was a general mistrust 
in regular folks who are not doctors and nurses uh, taking care of patients. There was such a mistrust in it that I, that I took Shanti out of the medical school context and put it in the community. Uh, we started our own organization outside the medical school and it, it worked. It, it worked in the sense that it became a, a, a community effort. It was neighbors helping neighbors. And when uh, the first seven years, we were a cancer project and took care of people with cancer. Um, anybody who called Shanti could get a volunteer. And somebody who can, who's trained in listening skills and communication skills and in a variety of other skills that were useful in caring for them during a rough time. And then in, after that first seven year period in 1981, the AIDS epidemic started and we shifted our focus. We were the first community-based AIDS program in the country because we already existed. We, were, we just had to switch our focus from cancer to AIDS. And we took care of people with, and still take care of people with HIV AIDS. Um, and then that happened for years until, of course, this new epidemic started, uh, COVID-19. And Shanti is now doing a lot of its caregiving in the same way that you and I are right now, by Zoom or by telephone or caring for people in ways that, uh, that uh, make it possible without jeopardizing anybody's uh, well-being. So... Over the years, Shanti went from a cancer project to an AIDS project to a project that cares for people with COVID-19. And we're still taking care of people with cancer and AIDS, by the way. Now, that never never disappeared. We just added more uh, responsibility. And we have many, many volunteers and people are trained. They go through a, a, a very uh, comprehensive training. And then the, a match occurs, we match volunteers with clients, with people who have called the organization and need help. And that's essentially what the, the thumbnail sketch of how Shanti evolved. And it's, it's now in its 47th year and it's been successful throughout uh, the, the city of San Francisco and many other sources are very grateful for our efforts and help support us. And we're going to keep doing this work for as long as it's necessary. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. Can you describe to get a, even a little more intimate sense for how the Shanti project would specifically show up for a community member? Could you describe that beginning, like that phone call, is this somebody like out in the community who like, who is calling and what are they asking for? Are they calling because uh, they need a hospice program or is there a way they reason they'd call the Shanti project that's different from maybe calling an organization like hospice by the Bay or uh, any hospice organizations like that? Um, I'm wondering if you could describe kind of that beginning and what the Shanti project started to offer back in the seventies that had people thinking, I need that. Well, the uh, main difference is that Shanti is not a hospice program. Hospices are essentially organizations set up to take care of people who by physician's estimate have six months or less to live. Shanti will take care of anybody who calls, including people right after their diagnosis, right after their diagnosis. Um, so we take care of people during the very long arc of their experience. And many of the people that Shanti cares for now, people with AIDS or people with COVID are not going to die at all in the near, in the near term from their disease. They're just trying to cope with a chronic ailment, a chronic illness. So there's really a, a considerable difference between hospice and Shanti. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's important to realize that, that, that distinction. And we send the volunteers out for, to, to care for people who are struggling with living, um, not necessarily facing their own death in an intimate sense. I see. I'm, I'm glad I asked. Um, 
And do you remember time in the beginning, thinking of you going into the hospitals that you see um, medical, uh, that you were the only one going to the bedsides at first or to see these patients in the beginning of Shanti project where you, was there a time when you were doing a lot of the visits and then it transitioned into a time where you were running the organization more? And what was that shift? Like, was there a feeling like you missed being, uh, with the patients one-on-one or the people that you were serving one-on-one, or have you always kept that as a part of your work over the decades? I've always kept it as part of the work. I knew that I had to have clients of my own. And sometimes it was only one person. Uh, Sometimes I was caring for my father or my mother or my best friend or a Shanti client uh, that that people thought I would be uniquely suited for. But I always kept my uh, close connection to people who were Uh, clients who are struggling with their own illnesses, their own situations, their own uh, challenges. Um, Yes, I I did go from being the person who took care of folks at the bedside, pretty much eight-hour shift, sometimes longer, to somebody who was supervising other people doing the same work. But I I never left the bedside. I've always been there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, Charles, it's, it's like I both have a sense for you as maybe having been someone who had kind of an even understanding for this and the need for it, the work and the need for the Shanti project through and through, and that it was steady and clear and the connections there's a thread that runs through all the decades, but I also wonder if there were times when it would, you were struck by revelations, you know, and, and, and having moments where you saw clearer than ever, maybe from these like moments specifically with, with the patients that you were visiting almost like, I think we talked about this a little bit during our first phone call, but this idea that there's following a bliss around knowing this is your work and your purpose. And that, do you remember specific moments like that, uh, that really were pivotal for you to keep moving forth or was it more like a steady? Cause just even that it took only a year after your grandfather's death to start the Shanti project feels like the connections were strong and almost tight in the timeline of this story. Um, can you speak to some of that a little bit? Yeah, I was very aware early that this was the work for me, that I was following my bliss. And if you ask me, how did I know? It was the gratitude that people expressed. Um, I had gone through a doctoral program, as I said, in clinical psychology. I wanted to be a helper. I wanted to serve human beings who were in tough situations. And the best use of my skills was at the bedside of people who were dealing with end of life concerns. And it was very, very clear to me that it was the gratitude that people expressed when they said to me that I, I really made a difference in their lives now that time was short, that it was really something that mattered to them a great deal. And, I, and, and for me, that was all I needed to hear. That gratitude taught me that I, w- I was doing the work that I was constitutionally suited to do, that it was the work that I, was, that I came here to do. If there's any way of saying, what is, the, what is the perfect work for a human being to be doing? I was fortunate enough to have found it in my 20s. And it was so clear that it was, it was my work. It was the work that I needed to be doing. Um, and in the, the way I knew that was the, the comments and the looks and the expressions of gratitude from people who I served. Yeah, I'm just smiling. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing all that. I know that you've written, what, 13 books. I, I, and I'm wondering about the other work that's emerged from these decades of doing the Shanti project that maybe aren't exactly, they're connected to the Shanti project, but they're not included in the Shanti project is, is, can you talk a little bit about that, about your writing and, and these books? And I know it's a lot over the years that you've published and other things that you might've done. I'm just wondering what, what 
versions of that feel particularly important um, and that stand out in these decades of all of this this work you've done in end of life? Well, you know, the, the, there have been many books. Uh, I, I seem to be a, a fairly prolific writer. <laughs> um, I've always had the sense that I did not want the uh, lessons I learned at the bedside and from Shanti work to be an oral tradition. I needed to get it down on paper. I needed to get these awarenesses down. So I wrote and I wrote books and probably the, the most uh, important book that I wrote uh, that really captures a lot of what we've been talking about and captures nearly a half a century of, of work with people at the end of life is a book called Life's Last Gift, Given, Re Giving and Receiving Peace When a Loved One is Dying. And Life's Last Gift really does focus on nine commitments that people can make to loved ones when they're at the end of their lives. Um, now, you, you mentioned, are there books that were offshoots of Shanti work that may not be specifically end of life? Um, yes, there's a latest book is called Our Wisdom Years, and it has to do with aging. And it has to do with the awarenesses and the wisdom that comes from uh, getting, being fortunate enough to live into your 60s at least, and maybe a lot longer, and to realize that one of the primary lessons of later life, if you allow that lesson to surface, is to use death as an advisor, that your own mortality is an advisor, that the fact that you don't have all the time in the world makes each moment, each day, each week and month and year precious. Okay, I real first of all, thanks to Charles Garfield. <laughs> thanks to Charles Garfield for that conversation. I know I said a version of this in the introduction, but it was really nice to we got a couple times. Uh we got a couple chances to connect and not just the the recording. And um it felt really good to get to be with him and uh learn from him and listen and share share with him what I'm up to. Uh so just personally uh, real pleasure to have him on the show. And um, you can find out more uh, about Charles Garfield. I'll put a bunch of links for all the things, including the Shanti Project, in the liner notes. Uh, how are you, Nick Jana? That made me think of like a family at a restaurant and the waiter walks up and the, the mother's like, I told you to get your elbows off. There. Oh, hello. How are you? <laughs> yes. We'll have the chicken chow mein. <laughs> yeah. Legs That's it. <laughs> That's it. Um, how are you doing today? I'm great. Just at my parents' house, you know, speaking of elders, speaking of elderhood, mm. speaking of finding those, you know, I was, um, we had a, another great episode that I, I thought of a lot during this one with uh, Stephen Jenkinson, the oh. title of which, of that episode is What, what the Hell Happened to Elderhood? Right. Um, and I remember talking to a friend, of, a Bolivian friend of mine, uh, 
uh, uh, recommending the the episode to him because he this my friend is a poet and Stephen Jenkinson is a poet and he looked at the title and he was like elderhood what does that word mean he's like I know hood is like a like a part of town right oh. <laughs> I was like oh yeah no it's not a neighborhood but actually it kind of is a neighborhood <laughs> like elderhood like it is kind of like a a place where you live you know? yeah but like I think Stephen Jenkinson and and Charles were both talking about like this valuable thing that isn't valued in our culture, isn't, isn't, doesn't have a monetary value and does become like all the elder, all the potential elders get kind of like shuffled off into, well, you won capitalism and you graduated and you don't have to deal with anybody and you have Mm -hmm. like what I would call fuck off money Mm -hmm. and you don't have any other social responsibilities or ties or, need to play chess with, with the kids or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do think that is a big uh, byproduct of capitalism in our culture is like those potential mentors are removed and like you're missing a huge aspect of just, you know, just tiny little things that you can't even put a finger on. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I, I, not even mentorship, but just like echoing somebody, modeling somebody, just mm-hmm. like seeing somebody's behavior and, you know, their respect for, their wife or whatever that is that, that gets passed down. Yeah. I mean, it, it really reminds me of this, this thing I've been feeling lately, which is like what it, what it's like to go to someone else for help. Um, Mm. and that I just don't think I was very well trained for that. Uh, I think that, that I was raised in a way that so much of the stuff we're struggling with, we kind of need to keep to ourselves. And so it's not even like just with elders, but like friends, you know, and, you know, someone who's a really good example teaches me all the time how to, how to do this. And it's so weird, right? Like how much, what do you need to know? Like, what do you got to (laughs) learn? You know, just call the person, but, but Chelsea, you know, your wife and my dear friend um, and, and our CFO among so many other things for you're going to die. But she just, just asked, I want to get like emotional now acknowledging that because it's it's powerful for me to be asked uh for help and what does she ask well she wanted a recipe for macaroni and cheese no she's asking about (laughs) she's asking about grief stuff usually you know i mean she's in the amount of time i've known her in the years i've known her she's asked for a lot of stuff but i'd say most recently it's asking about being with other community getting support and grounding. I'd say she'd even specify it as like a place to ground before she goes and, and is like with other people who are going through really hard stuff. And, um, and that, you know, that's just like one category though. And I, I can feel when I, today as an example, I did it a little bit with you and you might not have realized it, but we're having some frustrating Uh. stuff on the podcast. And I just, it was, it's kind of, it was a thing to let you know, like I'm frustrated. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, it's not easy. Like it felt like a, it's maybe even inspired by Chelsea and I'm kind of, mm. I, I digress. My point is, I wonder if there's <laughs> a general way that we were out of practice or never got into learning that, which is go to someone and find support. And it could be that because the system we live in has removed those people. But I also wonder if there is something about like, pull up your bootstraps and get it done. You know, like it's your job. You, yeah. And that's capitalism. Yeah. It's like, go out and get it. And like, that gives you the right of like, go make your money. Like it's up yeah. to you. Uh, and it's just you. It can just be you. But I really feel that a lot with the opportunity to talk to someone like Dr. Garfield and Stephen Jenkinson uh, as this opportunity to go to someone where I almost want to follow up with them and say, would you be down to do this once a week? You know, can we just talk every now and then, which I think they'd say <laughs> yes to, but I have asked people that before and that it's hard. It's a lot to ask someone to, uh, to be that in your life. But, um, maybe it isn't necessary that it's regularity of one person, but that we just find access to people, uh, and we pay attention for the chances, you know, um, like built into the work you and I do together with this show. I know you're someone I can come to and be like, this is a problem. Like, I can't figure it mm-hmm. out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need places to do that in life, I think. Even and I, I think it's listening, helped, you know. 
I think it's helpful when it's it has an ostensibly has another purpose. You know, like I've gotten a lot of value over the pandemic, and I've told you about this this site Italki, where you can talk to people in a in another language that you're learning, and and it's really easy to schedule. You pay a little bit, but it's it's kind of like the price of buying you and the other person a cup of coffee. Oh, you know? coffee! You're um, just, you're measuring. It. <laughs> to put it into terms, everyone can understand. That's yes, great. Our listeners appreciate it. And you get an hour, and you can talk about whatever. And you know, it's not to be used as therapy, but like it has helped me so much to just have another outlet, someone else to just talk about stuff with. And ostensibly, it's about the Spanish language, mm. but it's um, just having another focus gives you this opportunity, you know, where like if it, if it was about like my emotions and like help me and all this, you know, it would just have it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it would have a different feel to it. Right. Mm. And there's something that allows you to, to like get into that by doing other things. And I wish there were things like that for everything. <laughs> like I wish you could without this, the language component, yeah, just like pay someone 10 bucks for like, can we just talk for an hour? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, what's so interesting. And then the just to say like the money makes it yeah. more reliable that, that like, it's not just like that floating thing that I have a lot with a lot of friends of like, we should talk sometime when you're free. Oh, I don't know. You know, and like, it just never happens where it's yeah. just like, I'm going to go on this website and schedule this hour that. and you're just going to be there. You know? Yeah. I get that. You know, I've been trying to, and, and have succeeded at creating that kind of opportunity with our nonprofit where it's this one-on-one -on -one chance to be with other people that need to be listened to. And it's like the most intimate version of the workshops, the open mics, like all of our other events. And, um, and I think that's what you're describing. There is something yeah. about it. Actually, we're getting into the money thing a little bit, uh, maybe too much, but, but I, what I like is it's the consistency and that having that, and we built it in as like, it's a contribution to the nonprofit to make more of this possible for more people. Um, the money makes it more accountable. Mm -hmm. The money makes it so that you just don't put it off. Absolutely. And it can be a very small amount. And it actually doesn't matter which way, at least for me, it doesn't matter which way the money's going, you know, because right. I get I get paid for that and I also pay for it. And yeah. it's like both ways make it more accountable yeah. than if it's just this floating thing. I, I get that. And and um but to your point, it's like more than even any of the ways to have it happen, there's the like need to have it be regular, you know, the consistency yeah. Yeah, yeah. with which you can check in with somebody. And um, but you know, it's like it that's that it's nice to think about that ideal possibility and um also just to do the work of creating a list of people that you can go to with the hardest stuff you're dealing with yeah. um and i feel like you know someone like chelsea's taught me that i think you know i'm on a list of people she can go to you know um mm -hmm. and uh and she's on mine um but it certainly takes real conscious effort uh, and I wonder what she'd say about this, but, but I think for me, it would take, re it takes real conscious effort to be like, all right, you definitely shouldn't hold this all on your own. There's someone else to go to. And, and then to get back to sort of the reason why we're talking about this in, in the context of the episode that, um, we need more places to go to be with people that have the experience. And you know what? That doesn't mean that we're having someone that has the wisdom or even the answers, but they have yeah. listening that is supported by decades more of being alive, being in the world, doing work like they've done. And that's what I felt like with Dr. Garfield. I can't tell you why I learned this from him, but the being with him, his understanding, the emotions that connected. And I talk about it like this sometimes in our grief workshops. Maybe you couldn't relate to this, but the idea that like, it's not exactly the stories that are matching, you know, it's like what we've been through, even if it's some specific kind of loss or even specific kind of work, it's, it's like our human being through those stories is what connects. And, mm -hmm. um, I really felt that with him and, and feel like, gosh, I just, I'm so grateful that this podcast let me have that. And in a way, I'm grateful that it let me have that because it has me paying attention for it more and even naming it more to go out in the world and tell someone like, you know, you're this for me. Mm -hmm. Like the way I got emotional with Chelsea is for a lot of reasons because of how I'm feeling right now. But one reason why I think I got emotional is because of what I said right after, which is it's a big deal, you know, to tell someone I, I go to you, I need you, you know, like mm -hmm. you're who I need. Yeah. And and we don't have people even telling us that enough, let alone like saying it to others. So 
So I want to say that to you, Nick, right now. I need you. Thanks for being here today and for helping me get through a hard, frustrating stretch. And I really mean it. (laughs) And, and and, I mean, thank you. And, And any of the things that would hold you back from reaching out to somebody I, I think what you learn when someone reaches out for you is it's like, you're not like, oh my God, who has the time for this? Or what you like, like there's a feeling of like, you feel honored, right? Yeah. Or you feel yes. like needed at the very Matter. least. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine when you reach out to somebody that they might also feel that. And it's not like a bother and a waste of time right. for them. It's just like, oh, wow. I'm, I'm great that you came. I'm grateful that you came to me and that I have something that can help you. Absolutely. I'll say it to people in our grief workshops, you know, it's like, let us know if you need anything between sessions, you know, Mm -hmm. you make my life mean more. You make my life have more meaning when you reach out, you know, and knowing not everybody needs to, and I'm maybe not that person for everybody, but that the invitation is genuine and that it's really backed by this. It, it, it matters to me in that way. And, um, yeah, cool. Thanks for helping me clarify some of that. Yeah. And uh, thanks again to Dr. Charles Garfield for being one of those people uh, that showed up in that way. Um, And hopefully you felt some of that too. Like by getting the window into our conversation, all you listeners got some version of, of, uh, you know, being with an elder. And um, I think that's it though. I'm I'm good. Is there anything else, Nick, you want to talk about? Touch on? No, We, we good. We good. Okay, everybody, thanks again for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye, Bye. Nick. Bye. Bye. Bye.